Go ahead and turn your Bibles to Revelation 21. We have been talking uh, and kind of hanging out in Revelation chapter 20 and 21. Uh, and so this morning we are in um, chapter 21 for the first time. We'll be in verses 1 through 8, which are uh, among my favorite verses of Scripture in the entire Bible. Uh, and so, but, so I'm, I've been excited to, to preach from this, this passage for a while now. Um, and, but it's all about a wedding. Um, and um, if, you, if you have been married... Uh, especially, I think, if you've been a bride, or if you are currently getting married, or if you've been the father or mother of a bride, uh, and groom, I would say, like, uh, you know uh, how much preparation weddings take. And, and I know when Catherine and I got engaged, uh, very shortly after, like, probably that same day, this, this giant three-ring binder came out. Uh, that was full of, this was before the days of Pinterest and that sort of stuff, but this is a binder which was full of all these ideas and pictures of dresses and food and like, you know. And it, it was at that moment that I knew my role in this whole process was going to be minimal. Um, and my, probably my dream of having a canoe full of shrimp at the reception was not going to take place. But Darby, that's your dream now. Um, but even small weddings, even small weddings take time and planning and, and there's hundreds of decisions and not to mention there's money and resources that are needed and there's, there's thousands of things to do. There, there are guest lists and invitations and dresses and suits to pick out and flowers and, and potential bridesmaids to let down easy because they didn't make the cut and you know, then there's a venue and, and a menu to plan and... And I only remember making one decision uh, in the process. And not that I wasn't tr- included. I was, and I was happy with making one decision, just so that we're, we're clear. But what my groom's cake would be, I, I did have definite opinions on that. Um, and so, but, but all, of, all of history, all of history has been one big wedding planning session. It is the run-up to one big wedding, and there's been, there's been far more work, far more planning, uh, far more preparation. It has been more costly than any other wedding, but it would be more than worth all the preparations, all of the anticipation, all of the waiting, and the bride will be more radiant than any bride that has ever come before. She will, she will glow with a joy unmatched by any bride that, that ever was. Not because she herself is the most beautiful, but because she will know on that day that she is more loved than any bride that ever was. And the bride on that day will be you and me, the church. Be the church of Jesus Christ, adorned, dressed, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, escorted into his presence by the love of Christ. For the people of God, eternity's beautiful beginning 
is with Jesus the faithful one. That's what this is about. For the people of God, eternity's beautiful beginning is with Jesus the faithful one. And so let's look at this in two ways. First of all, the bride in her dwelling place. And then second of all, the groom in his work. So the bride in her dwelling place and the groom and his work. So let's read Revelation 21, 1-8. And then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for the murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in a lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, May the truth be spoken and received here today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, first of all, we're looking at the bride and her dwelling place. And I'm going to break that down into two parts. First of all, what John saw. And then second, what John heard. Because there's some visual storytelling going on. But then there's some things that are said and the things that John hears that are very important. And so, let's look at what John saw first as we, as we think about the bride and her dwelling place. Verse 1 says, Then I saw... A new heavens and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. So, right off the bat, if you remember from chapter 20, this links this verse, verse 1 of 21, to verse 11 of chapter 20, when, when the, 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 the figure seated on the white throne shows up at first, and it says, Then earth and heaven fled away. Uh, from his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. So in other words, the old creation, the old cursed creation has been wiped away, making room for a new pristine creation. And I remember as a kid in elementary school, uh, we actually had a chalkboard. Um, and on Friday, it was someone's treat to take a wet rag and wipe that. Like, we fought over this job in elementary school because it was so satisfying to wipe away all that stuff, all the chalk dust from that week, and we had this pristine, nice, clean chalkboard, uh, and the loser got to go out and clap the, the chalk erasers together for 30 minutes. Um, <laughs> 
But, so that's what's happening. This new pristine slate, like literally a clean slate, is wiped away. And then there's this, this somewhat troubling passage, this is phrase in here, the sea was no more. Now look, this does not mean there will be no beaches in heaven. So don't worry, if you love the beach, the beach will still be there. But the sea in the Bible is an image of a realm of death, right? So it talks about death and Hades being thrown into the lake of fire, the the, you know, the, the power of death and the places of death are done away with because the old curse is no more. Like death is a part of the curse. It is not. Uh, it, is, it is not a natural part of life. Death is an alien. It's an enemy. And it's destroyed. And so the sea being no more here is a reiteration of this wonderful truth that there is, there is no more death. There's no need for a place of death because death has been defeated, right? There's a new workspace. Most of you, like, most of you didn't get to see this building on the day in which the flood actually happened. Uh, or the day that we discovered the flood actually happened. And it was a, it was a Thursday and I got some pictures and, and you know, I came in here and like, the water was everywhere, literally inches of water on every surface of the floor. And now we're, we're just now on the tail end of, of recovering from all of that and the building being made new. At least the bottom quarter of it is made new. Um, but they had to rip everything out. And, I, and most of you did see, either see the building itself or see pictures of, of it in that process. But, but as they were drying it out, there were these giant tunnels and tubes of, of air blowing in every direction and every, from every place. And they were, they were just drying stuff out and it looked like some kind of weird government alien decontamination kind of operation going on in the church building. Uh, but, but we loved our building before the flood. We loved it. We, we took care of it. We tried to. We, we stewarded that building well. We valued it because it was useful to us, right? But we had to tear it down to make room for the new uh, work that was coming in. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that we didn't love the old, right? But it was ruined by a disaster. Creation is wonderful. God said it was good. After he created it, it was wonderful and it's beautiful and it's and it's useful. We were called to be good stewards of it, but but it's ruined. It's cursed because of sin. It's cursed because of the disaster of the fall. And and something new and something better is on the way. Verse two says, "I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband." This image of New Jerusalem, this image of this this holy city of God, uh, represents not so much a place but a people. Like that's the image of God's people. There, New Jerusalem is not so much a place rather than the representation of God's people on earth, the church. And and though these events are in the future, the reality that binds them about, the the reality that brings them about, rather, is is here and now. So we're, we're thinking about something which is happening in the future, but the reality of the thing which is going to cause it to happen, this new people of God coming down out of heaven adorned as a bride, like the reality that makes that possible has already taken place. 
And as we read about the bride of Christ adorned for her wedding day, prepared as a bride, it said, remember that the truth is, is today, as redeemed believers in Jesus, we are the bride of Christ. This is our current identity, although the fullness of what that truth means for us is yet to come about. Our current identity is as this bride for our heavenly bridegroom. So that what we experience now, the sanctification that we are going through from, from trial and suffering, is a part of our preparation for glory. It's a part of our being prepared as a bride. What we learn, how we grow, how we are made more like Jesus, it's not discarded when we get to heaven. That the tears of today serve their ultimate purpose as one day the Father wipes them away with his own hand. As we, as we stand before him in this, this new creation that we're destined for. So don't think of what you are going through now or what you have been through or what you will go through as being somehow wasted and not of value in the coming reality that we're going to live in. Just the opposite. That what you are going through now serves its purpose as God touches you and ministers to you and heals you and reminds you and one day shows you by His smiling face that His intentions were good all along. That's what John saw. What did John hear? And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is the pronouncement of what is to become of those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the, the next step in that story of, our, of God's people. That God's permanent dwelling place is with his church, with his bride, with his people. That Eden, the Garden of Eden, is not just restored, but it's improved upon. Like perfect and eternal covenant fulfillment. That's the story that we're in at this moment. That is the story of history that is leading up to this great wedding day. From garden to glory. From Adam to Abraham to Moses to David to the New Testament church. That's the story that God is writing in our lives. From the war bow of God hung in the heavens, pointed up and into heaven rather than down at mankind to the covenant promise to Abraham when God said to Abraham, I will be God to you and to the offspring after you. To the, to the imagery of the wilderness tabernacle and the, the 
temples with their, their motifs of trees and fruit, recreating the garden in which God dwelt with man, and the, the cherubim who guarded the entrance into the most holy place. To Jesus himself, whose name was Emmanuel, God with us. But what we read in, in Revelation 21, what John is hearing now, is the fulfillment of all of that. And then it says, the old order of things has passed away. So what is the old order? Sin and separation. Curse and death. That the veil of separation between God and man is completely done away with. So that, that God the Father is close enough to his people to, to reach out and wipe away the tears from our faces. That's pretty close. Before our relationship was characterized by distance, by barrier, by separation. But now that veil of separation has been done away with. It has been torn by the tearing of the flesh of the Son of God. But throughout the millennia, God has been moving in love towards His people. Despite sin and rebellion... Despite our idolatry and our rejection of his loving rule and reign, but because of his own determination to love a broken people, God has been moving, moving, walking, drawing near to his people. We saw it with Abraham. How God draws near to Abraham in this covenant feast of love that, that Abraham sets before these figures who show up. And he does this because of his own determination, his own will, his own desire, his own passion for you, his bride. Because of his own gracious and loving nature. What John hears is this declaration of God's determinative love for his people and the end game for that. He sees a picture of how serious God is in loving his people. That's the bride. That's who we are. That's who God is. Our dwelling is not a city necessarily, but it's in His presence, so near that He can reach out and touch your face, wipe away your tears. Let's look at the groom, the groom and his work. Verse 5 And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So the speaker here between verse 4 and 5 has changed. I want you to kind of make a note of that. In verse 4, it's just sort of some unidentified announcer, right? Some angel or something who is, who is pronouncing these words that John is, is hearing. But, but now it says the one who is seated on the throne is talking. And you better write it down. 
different speakers, no, no longer some detached, uh, you know, movie trailer voice. But this is the, the, the voice of God seated on the throne. And this is only really the second time that God speaks directly in the book of Revelation. And so this charge to write down these words is, is given. And, and, you know, John has been writing all of this down, obviously, because he did. We have it. And he's been writing everything down. Uh, but there's an additional charge to, to take special care with these words. As they come from the seat of all authority and all truth. And it talks about the work of the groom. The work of the groom is to make a place suitable for the eternal relationship between himself and his bride. Verse 6 says, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We need to remember that going way back in the beginning to Genesis 3, that God is the one who pronounces the curse. God is the one who pronounces the curse and, and God is the one who puts an end to it. That, that the redeeming love of God has been at work from the beginning. In Genesis 3, as God pronounces the curse, which is a consequence of the fall in, in the garden, and He pronounces at the same time His intention to undo the curse. So he pronounces this horrible truth of what has happened to his creation as a result of man's sin and rebellion. And then with the same breath, he says, I'm going to send a Savior. I'm going to undo this. This isn't the end of the story. That my, my will is to save you from what has happened and what you have done. He begins and continues that promise all the way through the storyline of the Bible. Listen to these words from Isaiah 43, which is kind of like smack dab in the middle of that storyline, right? A couple hundred years before Jesus shows up, uh, a couple thousand years after the fall, Isaiah 43 says, Remember not the former things, but consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. I mean, just dwell on those words for a minute. I mean, as I was reading, I, I, I read that plenty and studied that plenty during the course of the reading. But as I was reading it to you just now, I got a little, I got a little, you know, the clip, you know, I got a little, little, little choky in the throat here, just thinking about this, thinking about the, the, the goodness of God as He proclaims these words, as He tenderly comes to His people and says, says these things through the, the pen of Isaiah. Behold, I am doing a new thing, and now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Don't you see? Don't you get it? Don't you see what I'm doing? 
Don't you see what my intentions are? Where, where this is going? That there is something new coming in place of the old that, that, that you just won't even want to remember the former things. You won't even want to think about the way things were in light of the beauty of the way things now are because of the redeeming work of God, His determinative uh, will to save and redeem and renew a creation and people for Himself. So even as we experience the pain and brokenness of this place, remember there's a new place. And even as our eyes are shrouded in the darkness of what's going on around us, the fear and anxiety, the, the, the pain and suffering, the crying out, even as our, our eyes are darkened by the questions of why and how long, God is saying to us, something new springs forth. Can't you see it? Look. Look at, look at what I'm doing. That all of history is enfolded in the Alpha and the Omega presence of God's redeeming love. From, from A to Z, God's sovereign intentions run in all that happens. The Shorter Catechism says that God's works of providence are His most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing of all His creatures and all their actions. I'm doing something new. Can't you see it? The work of the groom is to make his church a new people. Verse 6 says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In other words, he knows our deepest need. He knows the deepest need of our heart. He says, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert in Isaiah 43, 19. That he knows what we are thirsty for. He knows what our spirits long for. And he says, I will give it to them without payment. First of all, what we need most deeply, he knows, is himself. And second of all, it's not that the water is free, but it's that the price has already been paid by Christ Jesus as he offered himself to us freely on the cross. In his encounter with the woman at the well in John 4, John writes, Jesus answered her, If he knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, he would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Jesus himself is the gift of God. And he offers us himself as the one who ultimately meets our needs. The work of the groom is to make his church a new people by uniting us with our bridegroom, Jesus, the living water. And he does this by fighting. 
The work of the groom is to fight for his bride. Verse 7 says, The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. As we talk about living between the already and the not yet, yet we, we feel this tension more fully on the not yet side of things, right? We tend to, to feel the weight of the not yet having the fullness of all this wonderful truth coming about and living in that reality rather than the hope of the already. It's harder to cling on to the hope than it is to be overwhelmed by the pain of the not yet. Revelation is about the consummation of a romance. It's a, it's a romance novel. Between the king and his royal bride, the church. And the book of Revelation is full of all this terrifying stuff. That there's, there's blood there's fire, there are locusts, there is a trembling earth, there are falling stars, there's a dragon and monsters. And the whole terrifying conflict has been about the groom's jealous love for his bride. Revelation is about a love so sacrificial that the groom lays down his life to protect her from every threat. You are loved enough by your wonderful groom. He's the king. He's your savior. He's the divine son of God. You are loved enough by Jesus for him to fight and die for you. And God gives this revelation to the church as a declaration of his faithfulness. It's a reiteration of his promises to his people. It's, he is telling us the story that hasn't happened yet so that we can endure to the end knowing that he will finish the work that he began. And the Lord's table this morning it points us as a reminder to this truth that our groom fights for his bride with his life and that he's been victorious, that he's been successful, that he has, he has defeated his enemies and all comers who would threaten his bride. Partake of Jesus. He is our heavenly bridegroom. First, by believing in him, trusting in his death on the cross as the one substituting himself and taking the place that, and the punishment that our sins deserved, trusting his perfect life lived for his imperfect people, and that he fulfills all the demands of God's law for us in his life and in his death. That is his work for us, that our identity comes from his work and his fight for his bridegroom, such as his love for his people. Delight in that. Rest in that. Oh, it's hard to rest in that.
Oh, it's hard not to, to derive your identity from something other than that. But, but that is the only source of identity that we have that gives us life. Everything else falls short. Jesus, our bridegroom, is coming for his bride. Let's celebrate that this morning, even as we come to this table together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness and mercy to your people. Thank you that you have loved us with a a love eternal that from before the foundation of the world you were setting your desire and your intention and your heart on your people. That when you looked at us, you saw not a, a... not a, a broken and ruined uh, person, but rather you saw the beauty of what we were to become because of our relationship to Jesus. Lord, thank you that that our identity, our worth, our value is found in Him rather than in ourselves or in any, any other thing or relationship in this world. Lord, as we come to this table this morning, we pray that you would remind us of that wonderful, glorious truth. That you know us fully, and you love us completely. Lord, thank you for that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.